Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this seminar, which is on the title, Science Has Evolution Buried God. My name's Adrian Holloway. I'm based at Everyday Church in London. Folks, shortly after I became a Christian, I had a friend called Andy Porter, and I excitedly told Andy Porter about Jesus. And Andy Porter replied, I don't believe in God. I believe in evolution. This seminar is about what you or I could say to Andy Porter. How should we respond to our friends who think that evolution rules out God? Firstly, before we get into that, it will probably be helpful for us to remember that Christians take different views on evolution. So let me quickly mention three different positions. All three of these views would probably be represented on this campsite. All three of these positions would probably be represented in your church. Firstly then, young earth creationism. This is the view that the earth is young. The earth is no more than 20 to 30,000 years old. If you asked a young earth creationist, well, what about all the fossils? Aren't they millions of years old? A young earth creationist would typically reply, no, those fossils were laid down during Noah's flood. If you ask, but what about the dinosaurs? Aren't the dinosaurs between 250 million and 65 million years old? They'd say, no, all dinosaurs lived and died thousands, not millions of years ago. Young earth creationists state that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are best understood as literal 24-hour days. And this interpretation has held sway in the vast majority of Bible-believing churches in the USA for many years. Young earth creationists are adamant that evolution has not taken place, by which they mean evolution on a large scale, or what we might call macro-evolution. And let us be clear about this. Everyone agrees that micro-evolution, evolution on a small scale, has taken place. Of course, you get variations, you get adaptions, you get small horses becoming big horses. We can breed endless varieties of dogs. You get bacteria developing resistance to antibiotics. Of course, in nature, you do get the survival of the fittest. The weak do get killed by the strong. So natural selection is a fact of life. There is no dispute about that. All Christians agree with microevolution. In fact, as far as I know, everyone alive today believes that evolution on a small scale has taken place. What young earth creationists challenge is evolution on a large scale. They don't buy the spectacular story of how a single-celled organism an amoeba evolved into fish, fish into reptiles, reptiles into birds, and then at the top of the tree, 
the bit that we're most familiar with, which is monkeys becoming people. The idea is common descent, one species evolving into another, into another over millions of years. So young earth creationists don't believe that all living beings are descended from a common ancestor, which would be the first ever single-celled organism. Young earth creationists don't believe in common descent. And for this view, you could go to Answers in Genesis, which is fronted by Ken Ham. A second view is old earth creationism. And the version of this that I'm going to present to you is put forward by a biochemist called Fazrana from Ohio University and a Canadian astronomer called Hugh Ross from Toronto University. They lead a ministry called Reasons to Believe. So old earth creationists, as the name implies, they say that the earth is old. They are happy to go along with the modern scientific consensus today which says that the universe is around 13.7 billion years old and that the Earth is around 4.5 billion years old. These guys argue that the Hebrew word yom, translated as day in Genesis chapter 1, can mean a long period of time. And they argue that elsewhere in the book of Genesis, the word yom is definitely used to refer to a long period of time. Just like a history book might say, in the day of Queen Victoria, London doubled in size, using day to refer to a long period of time. So the old earth creationists, they say the creation days were long days, longer than 24 hours. But the old earth creationists agree with the young earth creationists that common descent has not taken place. They agree with the young earth creationists that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God, that they were the first anatomically modern humans ever to live on earth. The old earthers argue that even with life starting on earth 3.8 billion years ago, they argue that is still not enough time for gradual step-by-step -step evolution to have got us all the way from an amoeba to modern humans. But here's the thing. The old earth creationists at reasons to believe accept that there were many different hominids who lived on earth before we humans came on the scene. They accept, for example, that Chidensis was a hominid living in Chad in Africa seven million years ago. That Ardipithecus ramidus lived between six and five million years ago. That Afarensis was a hominid living between four and three million years ago. That Homo agaster lived between 1.8 million and 0.5 million years ago. And finally, that Neanderthals lived between 150,000 and 30,000 years ago. But the old earthers argue that although these are bipeds, none of these hominids are related to us. Spiritually speaking, they say they were animals that God created and later went extinct. None of them are our ancestors. And for this view, you can go to reasons.org and the key scholars there are Hugh Ross and Fazrana.
A third view is theistic evolution. Now, here's a big difference. These guys accept macroevolution. They accept common descent. But they argue that God was guiding the process. Some argue that God got involved to get us over a few crucial barriers to our evolutionary progress, especially at the miniature level of molecular biology. But either with more or less divine intervention, the point is that the theistic evolutionists agree with the scientific consensus today that common descent has taken place. So they might say, yes, we humans are descended from an ancestor that we once shared with a chimpanzee. Now, of course, a question that a theistic evolutionist will often get asked is, what about Adam and Eve? And here, in response, there are a number of different models that you can choose from. And it's important to understand that evolutionary biologists say that evolution has taken place in populations. So, one theistic view is within a population of hominids, there was one couple who we now call Adam and Eve, who although they look similar to their parents and to everybody else alive at the time, something unique happened to them spiritually, whereby God sent his spirit into them, making them the first people to bear the image of God. So Adam and Eve are like a representative couple in a big group. They weren't the only human-looking people alive at the time, but in God's eyes, they became special. So a theistic evolutionist might say, when in Genesis 2 verse 7 we read, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, they would point out that God was making Adam out of something that he'd previously made. A bit like they'd say in Genesis 1.24 where it says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. They'd say, sounds like the earth is doing some of the work. Nature's doing some of the work. So they would say, maybe there is scope here for Adam being descended from a non-human ancestor. And here you could look at biologos, which is the ministry of a famous geneticist called Francis Collins. So it's obvious that these three views do interpret the early chapters of Genesis differently. And all of us can look at the early chapters of Genesis and come up with what we think is the best understanding of the text. In this tent, we will probably have supporters of all three of these views and of several other views that I've not had time to mention. For what it's worth, I myself am an old earth creationist. But remember, while we are, as Christians, we're discussing amongst ourselves which view we think is best, we are standing with Andy Porter, and Andy Porter is saying, I don't believe in God, I believe in evolution. So here's how I might respond to Andy. Remember, my friend Andy is convinced that macroevolution is true. And of course, that's the majority view in the media, on television. It's what he would have heard at school and at university. It's what I've been taught. Macroevolution is what 
my parents believe. So I probably start by saying, okay, Andy, for the sake of the discussion, let's say I accept 100% macroevolution is true. Andy, if macroevolution has happened, God can still exist. And I might try and begin with a gentle reminder about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory is. Biological evolution does not even start until the universe has already been around for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did it begin to exist? How come there's something rather than nothing? Evolution doesn't even address that question. To get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that was capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence, that cause can't be biological evolution because there is no biology before the universe exists. So I would say to Andy, God could be the cause of the universe. That's point one. Point two, how come the universe is finely tuned in such a way as to permit advanced organic life? Biological evolution says nothing at all about that. That is miles outside of its remit. Why is the earth just right for advanced organic life? We know other circumstances would have ruled out all life anywhere in the universe. Yet, we have a life-permitting universe. Why? I'd say, Andy, maybe God fine-tuned our universe for life. And crucially, evolution has no way of explaining how life ever got going on Earth in the first place, because it's a theory that addresses what happens after life got going on Earth. And the next slide shows some of the problems or barriers to getting life going on Earth through chance alone, through purely naturalistic processes. Evolution begins after you've already got our universe and our planet Earth, and after you've already got a single-celled organism living in the ideal conditions on our planet. All three of these questions lie outside of the scope of biological evolution. So I think it's obvious evolution could be true and God still exists. It will be a mistake to argue because evolution has happened, God doesn't exist. That is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. So I would say to Andy, in summary, we've mentioned three mega questions, Andy, about the origin of the universe, about the fine-tuning of the universe, about the origin of organic life. Evolution doesn't even speak to these three mega questions. So evolution hasn't buried God. God could be responsible for all three. God might be responsible for two. But if there's even a chance that God is responsible for one, then God isn't dead and buried. Evolution hasn't buried God. God is a possible, reasonable explanation for all three. And so it's no surprise to find that most people alive today do believe in God. In addition to all of this, Andy may be encouraged and reassured to know that there are Christians who believe that macroevolution, evolution on a large scale, has taken place. And here I might refer to Francis Collins, the theistic evolutionist who I just mentioned. 
I can say, Andy, let's say for the sake of the argument that I agree that we have found the mechanism, natural selection acting upon random mutation. The discovery of a mechanism doesn't rule out God. Maybe God used the mechanism of natural selection, random mutation acting together. That's how God chose to make humans. If we have found the mechanism, great. God can still exist. That's what I might say to start with. So hopefully, Andy Porter can see that there are top scientists, evolutionary geneticists like Francis Collins, who believe in God, who trust in Jesus. Francis Collins could come to New Day. Francis Collins could worship God with the rest of us. And for example, when I was speaking at Southampton University, I teamed up with Professor Keith Fox. Keith is professor of biochemistry at Southampton University. Keith is a theistic evolutionist. He and I work together as a team. I've preached at his church. Keith Fox could come to New Day. Keith Fox could worship Jesus with the rest of us. Keith Fox is confident that macroevolution has taken place. So if Andy Porter is worried, he's going to have to commit intellectual suicide to become a Christian, Andy can go and talk to Keith Fox. There is no need for Andy to run away from God. Folks, Andy does not have to give up his belief in macroevolution within 10 minutes or else. We can show Andy that there are Christians who share his sincere belief in macroevolution. We don't have to make evolution the deal breaker in the first 10 minutes of the conversation. Let's imagine that Andy then says, okay, Adrian, maybe you're right. Maybe I was too quick. Adrian, I was too hasty to call myself an atheist. Yeah, okay, I accept God could exist. And, of course, I still believe in macroevolution. And then in the best-case scenario, I could say to Andy Porter, great, Andy, let's look at Jesus. Andy, let's look at the claims of Christ. In fact, let's look at the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And that is one way that the conversation could go. It is all very neat and tidy. All being well, Andy Porter would then look at the claims of Christ. He might even come to church with me. But of course, there is an alternative possibility. What if Andy comes back about three months later and says, yeah, I agree, it could be, Adrian, that God does exist, but over the last three months, I've started to read some bits of the Old Testament and the New Testament about Adam and Eve, and I've also been reading on that website, the Biologos website, about theistic evolution, and I don't think that theistic evolution is compatible with the Bible. What if Andy says, I don't think you can have Adam and Eve as just a representative couple. Andy says, I think the Bible is saying that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God. They weren't just picked out of a crowd of 2,000 people who were alive at the time. What if Andy says that macroevolution doesn't fit with Genesis chapters 1 and 2? Well, at this point, I'd have, to be honest, I'd have a mixture of emotions. On the one hand, I would be really pleased 
that Andy can now see that evolution hasn't buried God. But then on the other hand, I suppose at this point, I would have to ask Andy some of the questions that I personally have about macroevolution. And as I ask Andy these questions, it's going to become obvious I haven't yet been personally persuaded that macroevolution has taken place. So please remember, in the next few minutes, I'm speaking as an old earth creationist to Andy, who's a non-Christian, and Andy now thinks that theistic evolution is a non-starter. So I'm not on a mission to try and persuade Christians to change their mind. I'm not trying to get you to change your mind. Our friend Andy is not a Christian. In this scenario, Andy Porter thinks theistic evolution is a non-starter. What would I say to Andy then? Well, I might ask, okay, how would you explain the missing links in the fossil record and the Cambrian explosion? Now, what's going on here? Well, when Charles Darwin introduced the theory of macroevolution in 1859, the biggest problem that, was, that, that he had at the time was that although he said that fish had evolved into land creatures and that they'd evolved into birds and so on, at the time he didn't have the fossils to prove his theory. He didn't have the fossils of these intermediate creatures which supposedly existed. In other words, fish that had randomly grown the beginnings of legs, legs not yet powerful enough to walk on. Land creatures which had randomly grown the beginnings of wings, but wings not yet powerful enough to fly with. Although there were some prehistoric fossils that had been found in Darwin's time, Darwin was quite honest in saying that he didn't have any of the fossils or the transitionary creatures, but he confidently predicted that in the next century they would be found. Well, millions of fossils have been found in the 150 years since Darwin wrote his famous Origin of Species, but in the rocks we find nothing, 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 and then a Cambrian explosion of fossils with many animals much the same as we see them today. The fully blown body plans appear fully formed at the point where they first turn up in the fossil record. This is a problem acknowledged by people like Richard Dawkins, who writes, The Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest ones in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution. The very first time they appear, it is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. And one of evolution's leading advocates in the world today, Steve Jones, professor of genetics at University College London up until recently, he writes, the fossil record in defiance of Darwin's whole idea of gradual change often makes great leaps from one form to the next. Far from the display of intermediates to be expected from slow advance through natural selection, many species appear without warning, persist in fixed form, and disappear, leaving no descendants. Geology assuredly doesn't reveal any finely graduated organic chain, and this is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. 
Steve Jones writes, as more bones turn up, the story becomes less clear. In spite of a century's claims of the discovery of missing links, it's quite possible that no bone yet found is on the direct genetic line to ourselves. With so many kinds to choose from, so few remains of each, such havoc among the relics, none of the fossils may have direct descendants today. Let me just repeat two sentences from that quote. It is quite possible that no bone yet found is on the direct genetic line to ourselves, and none of the fossils may have direct descendants today. Folks, let me just say, this is not the message that is coming through in the classroom. On television, you get exactly the opposite impression from what Steve Jones, one of the world's leading evolutionists, is telling us here. Next, I might ask, how do you get the new genetic information needed to drive macroevolution over all the barriers that it faces? What is the mechanism? The studies I've seen suggest that species tend to revert to type and very little or no new genetic information is generated by natural selection acting upon random mutation. Yes, there are mutations, but mutations are rarely positive. They're like a printing error in a book. A printing mistake rarely improves the message, but for macroevolution to be true, we have to have loads of incredibly unlikely positive mutations all happening in a sort of coordinated way at the same time. We don't see this in nature. It doesn't happen. Now, evolutionists argue that with millions of tiny incremental alterations and vast amounts of time, huge change can be achieved gradually. But, for example, we have the dates for freshwater and saltwater whales. Recent studies into the evolution of freshwater whales into saltwater whales have shown radically different internal organs are required. Because we can date the whale skeletons, we know there is not enough time for this change to have come about by slight, successive, small, just-right mutations. Next, I might ask, surely much of the evidence for common descent could just as easily be interpreted as common design. In other words, whether you're looking at a DNA coding sequence, whether you're looking at a body plan, whether you're looking at a molecule, whether you're looking at a set of bones, in most cases I have come across, the homology or similarity between the same feature showing up in two very different animals could just as easily be explained by common design. If there is a creator, if there is a designer, maybe this designer used the same designs again and again in different animals, and that's why there are these similarities between organisms. Next, I might ask, surely some mechanisms within living things are irreducibly complex. Now, this is a much more simple point than it first appears. There are certain irreducible mechanisms in nature. They only work as they're currently set up right now. They could not work in any previous transitionary way because an organ is a highly integrated system. Any isolated change to the system is more likely to be harmful 
than helpful. If a fish's gills were likely to start mutating into a set of lungs, that would be a disaster. It would not be an advantage. The only way to turn a fish into a land-dwelling animal is to transform it all at once. To have thousands of interrelated random mutations all at once. A biochemist called Michael Behe has come up with a helpful illustration to explain the idea of irreducible complexity. He says, imagine a mousetrap. It's got six basic parts. A base, a spring, a hammer, a piece of cheese, and so on. Take any of those six things away, and you won't catch any mice. The mousetrap will not work at all. Behe simply says, the mousetrap is irreducibly complex. You need all six components. He then says there are similar irreducibly complex mechanisms in nature. For example, blood clotting. Without blood clotting, we would all bleed to death. Too much blood clotting too early, we would have a blood clot, have a heart attack, and die. It is a process that cannot happen by incremental stages. You have got to have blood clotting working perfectly from the word go. Writing his famous Origin of Species, published in 1859, Darwin foresaw the problem when he wrote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Anyway, as we come into land now, whatever we think about this subject, perhaps it would be wise to finish with two cautionary tales. I'm sure that you would agree that we should all approach this subject with a good dose of humility. When I went to university 25 years ago, the way that biologists understood human origins was what was, through the, what was called the multi-regional hypothesis. If we could have the next slide, thank you. In other words, it was believed that human beings have evolved independently at the same time, ages ago, in many different parts of the world. And that that is the reason for the differences between the races today. It's why African people look different from Asian people and so on. Well, that model has now been discredited. That model has been replaced by the out-of-Africa model, which says that all people in the world today are all descended from one small group of modern humans who came out of East Africa comparatively recently. Well, that is an absolutely massive change. In the last 25 years, we've gone from human evolution happening all over the world at the same time ages ago to now, everyone in the world today is descended from one small population group from one location very recently. In the same way, when I published my book, Aftershock, in 2004, one of the first academic reviewers said that junk DNA or mitochondrial DNA, had no functionality. It's the best evidence that we humans are descended from other hominids, and that's why we've got all this junk DNA in our genes 
which is now non-coding junk that we still carry around, left over from our evolutionary past. But in the last five years, we've discovered numerous functions for junk DNA. Junk DNA is no longer considered to be junk at all. So we need to be cautious. And I always assume that the person I am speaking to has studied this subject in greater depth than I have. So where does this all leave our friend Andy Porter? Well, I could finish by saying, Andy, I hope we've seen that macroevolution, if true, wouldn't bury God. We're not faced with an either-or situation. The case for God is not defeated by macroevolution. In fact, the case for God is a bit like a court case where there are numerous different lines of evidence. There may be some scientific evidence, but the case doesn't rest entirely upon that. When it comes to the case for Christ, there is documentary evidence, there's historical evidence, there's circumstantial evidence, there's eyewitness evidence. You could look, for example, at the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Yes, the question of evolution is interesting, probably quite important, but Christianity is about Christ. You can come and consider the claims of Christ. And if Christ is risen, you can meet him. Andy, you can meet Jesus. More than a billion Christians today are claiming to have met Jesus because Jesus is alive. Thank you very much for your patience. You've been very kind. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, I'd now love to invite you to stand at these two microphones and ask any questions. I promise we'll finish bang on time. We won't overrun. I'll probably take quite a few questions before I try and respond to any. And then, as I said, we'll finish at 12.30. There'll be a 60-second break. You can leave then at 12.30. And then after that, I'll do another half an hour. So whoever comes first, I'll answer your questions as you come up. There's one microphone right here that I'm pointing to. There's another one right here to my left. Okay, if you'd like to go first, young men to my right, go ahead. As soon as you you arrive at the microphone, or or, do you want to go first to my left? Go ahead. Go for it. Um, Let's quiet down, everybody. Isn't all you're doing is just putting forward a God of the gaps type explanation? So we've like the origin of life, origin of the universe. So why shouldn't we just stick to science as it's the simplest explanation and God isn't needed? Great. This is a super question. If we simply reduce God as science discovers different things, eventually you have no God left. It's the God of the gaps argument. Isn't that what you're doing? Great question. What about over here? Do you think that Jesus was a young earth creationist? And if so, do you think that he was wrong? Yeah, so Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He perhaps wouldn't have been familiar with the term theistic evolution, for example. Was Jesus a young earth creationist? Can we work out from the New Testament whether he was or not? Over here? Um, If you take a uh, literal view at the Bible, when the universe was created in six days, does it mean that evolution didn't happen, evolution happened over time, or the Bible should be taken in a liberal view? Okay. 
Very good question. How about to my right? Go for it. Uh, you said that, uh, that God could have guided evolution, thus allowing, uh, hu thus allowing humans in, in our basic forms to be created millions of years after the original, uh, the original life forms existed. But why couldn't God just create humans in his image straight from the get-go? Okay, why didn't God create humans in his image just from the get-go? Okay, let me just um, pause. We've got loads of questions. I'll just address some of the ones that we've had um, in no particular order. Was Jesus a young earth creationist? Well, there was a moment when Jesus was under quite a lot of pressure and he was caught in a trap between two different groups of Jewish teachers who were trying to nail him on a question about divorce and we can find this in, in the Gospels, there are two different rabbinic schools who are arguing about an interpretation of an Old Testament law that Moses had laid down. It was all to do with divorce and whether you could divorce a woman just by saying something and, and so on. Anyway, the way that Jesus answers the question is to refer back to both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In the conversation, Jesus quotes from memory a verse from the bit of Genesis 1 which talks about Adam and Eve, and then another bit from Genesis 2 that talks about Adam and Eve again. Jesus talks about them being created male and female. I think that the most obvious reading of the Gospels is that Jesus did think that Adam and Eve were real people. Um, certainly when we read Paul's letter to the Romans, and he, uh, Paul talks about Adam and Christ, it's obvious that, Adam or, uh, that Paul also thought of Adam as a real person. Now, whether Jesus was a young earth creationist, I don't know. He may well have been. The young earth creationism may well be the best understanding of the scriptures. As I said earlier, I'm not on a mission to try and persuade you to choose one of those three groups. I'm interested in how we can best help non-Christians who know nothing about New Day, who have no clue about Christianity, but who are put off by this question of evolution I'm interested in helping them see that there's more to the question of Christianity than just this issue of evolution. So I'm not sure whether Jesus was a young earth creationist or not, but if you back me into a corner and put a gun to my head and said, do you think Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real historical people and that they were the first anatomically modern humans who ever lived? I would say, yes, I do think that's the best understanding of the Gospels. Another question was about a literal view. Is it necessary for us to take the six 24-hour creation days literally? Many Bible scholars would say yes. But clearly some Bible scholars would say no. There are even people who are speaking on this stage at New Day this week who would say no, I don't think they were literal 24-hour days because the word that's used the word yom that's used in Genesis 1 and 2 is definitely used within the book of Genesis to refer to a longer period of time. Another question we had was about the God of the gaps. And it's interesting to think about it this way. If you construct an argument for the existence of God and say that everything that we can't explain must be God, then the questioner is absolutely right. Whenever we, define, we find anything which science can now give an explanation for, God just got smaller. God's responsible for increasingly less. But what about another way of looking at it? What about looking at it that 
We don't necessarily know exactly how God made the universe out of nothing. But let's say we discovered the way that he did it. It wouldn't necessarily mean that God doesn't exist. The best analogy here is to think of a cup of tea. Let's imagine for a moment that I make a cup of tea. And then let's imagine that scientists discover the way that electricity heats an element that boils water. You could say, well, we've now discovered the mechanism. We know how the kettle boiled. We know how the cup of tea was made. So yes, we have found the mechanism. But you could still say the reason why I drank the cup of tea is because actually I wanted to make a cup of tea. The existence of the mechanism doesn't rule out the existence of Adrian Holloway. Adrian Holloway can still exist. It's just that there was this mechanism that created the cup of tea. So both the natural explanation, this is how it happened, and the personal explanation are both valid, accurate representations of how come the cup of tea was made. Now, interestingly enough, my own journey has been that as I've looked into these gaps, rather than finding uh, nothing at all, what I've found in those gaps is information. The best example of this would be what we've discovered in the last 20 to 30 years regarding the origin of organic life. Regarding the origin of organic life, we now know masses about what a cell looks like. Rather than finding an explanation which explains the way God, we found exactly the opposite. We found a level of complexity which defies any naturalistic explanation. It would be the same as walking along and finding a factory in front of you. It would be quite difficult to say, well, the factory just happened. Everything about the factory looks like it's been designed. That's what we find with the cell. If you go back to the question of the origin of the universe, same thing happened to me. As I went along in life, I discovered a level of complexity that I couldn't explain. It's exactly the opposite of the God of the gaps. In the gap, how come the universe exists, I found a level of complexity that I couldn't explain. I found that since Albert Einstein and his general relativity theory, since Sir Arthur Eddington and his discovery that we can see objects behind the moon, which shows that light is bent by the gravitational pull of the sun, we've discovered the universe is expanding. This is something that Edwin Hubble photographed back in the late 1920s from California. We now know the universe is expanding. In the gap, rather than finding nothing, what we found is evidence that Genesis 1-1 is correct, that the universe is expanding, that there was a beginning moment. We now know that there was a beginning to space, time, matter, and energy at a point in the finite past. The universe began to exist, which is what the Bible's always said. Again, rather than science taking us away from God, my own journey has been, as we learn more about science, it's led me towards God. Same is true of the fine-tuning of the universe. The more we discover about how finely tuned our universe is, the more we find about how extremely unlikely organic life is anywhere in the universe, the more it points towards a creator. So these are some great questions. Let's go over here to this side. Um, Given that theistic evolution and old earth creationism both inherently require death before humanity, um, how does that fit with the idea of death being a consequence of human sin? I'm so glad that this... Uh, young man to my left has asked this question because there's a big deal to do with did animals die before Adam and Eve sinned? I have been asked that question often in Christian circles 
But sometimes non-Christians might ask that question. So that's a great question. How about over here? What have you got? Mine was the same as his. Oh, well, very good. Thank you very much. What about over this side? Um, I don't know how to wear this exactly, but with the whole thing with time and the different and how old the Earth is, how what, what do you think is the best way of proving it? I mean, with fossils, if, um, they've actually um, aged one and, and, and they knew the age of it, but got it completely wrong. So how, what is the best way of measuring time? Thank you very much. A question about the dating of fossils. How about over here? As you were saying earlier, when you were talking about in the book of Genesis, where Earth breathed life into some of the items God placed on Earth, would you say that Earth breathed life into plants, then God breathed life into humans and animals? Thank you very much. Let's have one more, and then I'll try and respond to some. Go for it. When we as humans attempt to push along or create micro or macro evolution, is God displeased? I'm really sorry, could you just repeat it? When we attempt to, as humans, push along or create micro or macro evolution, is God displeased? When we attempt to push along micro evolution or macro evolution, is God displeased? Do you know that, that I often ask, I often say in these settings, I've heard it all before, I've never heard that question before. So thank you for asking, is God displeased? What a great question. Okay, let me just make a comment on some of these. Um, Within the Christian world, if you tuned in to an American Christian radio chat show host between a young earth creationist and either an old earth creationist or a theistic evolutionist, you would get a fiery debate. Possibly the most controversial question, the question about which some American Christians get most animated and are most nasty to each other about is about that question. Does the Bible give us scope to believe that before Adam and Eve sinned, there was both animal death and animal suffering before Adam sinned? The only way I think we can answer this question is to study the New Testament, look at the book of Romans, and I think that when Paul talks about this question, I think it is clear that he is talking about human death. In other words, that death enters the world at the fall as far as humans are concerned, but I don't think it's clear at all to me that it's ruling out animal death. So, yes, I happen to think that there were animals who lived and died before Adam sinned, and I think that that is a legitimate interpretation of the Bible. I could be wrong, but that's my view. Somebody else asked about the dating of fossils. This is a, a controversial question because young earth creationists are extremely keen to debunk virtually all fossil dating mechanisms or methods that you would read about on the BBC News website. When you go onto the BBC News website, there's been a discovery of a fossil, often a hominid fossil find. There was one in Morocco quite recently, about a month ago. It's massive news. I think it was actually the top story on the BBC News homepage. It wasn't in the science section. It was the main news story. Young Earth creationists have to argue that all of these fossils are less than 20 to 30,000 years old. Therefore, whatever dating methods are being used must necessarily be wrong if they're saying they're millions of years old. So young earth creationists say the whole worldview is that the earth has been around for millions of years or billions of years, and of course, therefore, that's going to skew all the results. 
If you look at the reasons.org website, I think there's a very good analysis there of luminescence dating, of carbon dating, and all the different ways in which geologists uh, use to date fossils today. Is God displeased by our attempts to move along micro and macro evolution? Um, personally, I don't think God is displeased by the scientific experiments that we've done, for example, with fruit flies. Obviously, if somebody's arguing for macroevolution, the best way to actually study whether it's happening would be to take a species that lives and dies very quickly, that has a very short lifespan. Can we get fruit flies, who only live for 24 hours or so, to mutate into something quite different? I think those experiments, personally, I think are helpful because we're testing a worldview. At the moment, scientists are saying that human evolution has stopped that we are no longer evolving any further. And so I'm not sure that there are any more experiments that we can do on that one. Let's have a couple more questions before we finish up. Go over to here to my my left. Go for it. Um, Well, because old Earth creationists believe that the world's been around for quite a long time, uh, with that, that would also mean that humans have been around for quite a long time. But how come people have only believed in God for a fraction of that time? Thank you very much. How about over here? Go for it. Say God didn't create the universe. What did then? <laughs> well, that's a very, very good question. That is the most profound question I think we've had. What did? Okay, very good. Let's have one more over here. Um, well, if Adam and Eve were the first humans and they had three sons, what, how did human genetic diversity happen and how come we didn't uh, die out due to having a really limited gene pool? And I, I couldn't, I'm, I'm really sorry. If you could speak right into the microphone as loud as you can, that'd be great, thanks. If Adam and Eve were the first humans yeah. and they had three sons, how come humans have genetic diversity and we didn't all die out due to having a really limited gene pool? Okay, the only phrase I caught was human diversity, so I can speak to that. I'm really sorry that I couldn't hear that question. Let's have one more, go for it. Um, with your belief of death happening before Adam sinned, When Adam sinned, would this mean that death changed in a way, so possibly gained a consequence or became a consequence? Yes. Okay, I'm really pleased that some of the most contentious questions have come up. That last one, again, is a massive question as far as the young earth creationist view is concerned. The young earth creationist view, again, of the book of Romans, we're now talking about a different bit of the book of Romans, is that at the moment that Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, there is a physical change in the world. That there is this decay and death that comes in at that moment, and they actually argue that the, that the whole structure of the universe has changed. Some of them even say that the Earth's atmosphere changes at that point, and was there a change to the structure of the universe at that point as Adam sinned? Um, I think the best way of explaining it is that there was a profound change in the universe at that moment because man's link with God is broken. I personally don't think that the earth's atmosphere altered at that point. I don't think that there was that profound change uh, in the ecosphere at that moment There are many, many good scientific reasons why I think it's actually impossible that that is the case. 
and that we need to have the second law of thermodynamics constant throughout the universe's history in order to explain the world as we have it today. There was an excellent question which, as you probably noticed, I didn't hear properly, for which I wholeheartedly apologize, and it's about human diversity. For me, this is the most interesting bit of all. Because when I was growing up, one of the big questions that I had is, how come people looking in Af living in Africa look different from me, who grew up in Western Europe? How come I look different from people who live in the Far East? How come they looked, and so on and so forth? And I was absolutely fascinated by the story of how did human beings colonize this planet? Now, of course, I grew up believing in macroevolution. That's what I was taught at school. That's what my parents believe. So like most people in Britain, I was taught the multi-regional hypothesis. I was taught, Adrian, it's simple to understand why African people look different from Far Eastern people look different from European people. It's because human evolution was happening all over the world at the same time, independently. You weren't getting sort of interbreeding, and that's why you've got these humans today who look so different. What was really fascinating for me, and this is relatively recently, this is the early 90s, that's when that view was still commonplace. Now, if you were to, for example, go and read Andrew Marr's History of the World, or download it and watch it, you will literally see on Andrew Marr's History of the World, a woman, mitochondrial Eve. One person from whom all living females are descended from that one DNA sequence. You literally see a group of people coming out of Africa. The story of the world's population begins with her face. Who is this woman? And we see her coming with this group of people out of East Africa these are the people that are going to colonize the world. Yes, they may have got in canoes to do the last bit of getting down to Australia. They went over the Bering Straits from Russia into North America, and then they swept down the western seaboard of North and South America between 10 to 14,000 years ago. It's the story of one group of people. Now, we've then got to ask, okay, but how, if everybody's descended from one population group relatively recently... How do we have all these different differences between the races? How come the differences in, say, facial features are so pronounced? The honest answer is, folks, at the moment, biologists aren't really sure. Some people think that through humans interbreeding with Neanderthals, that might explain part of the diversity of people's appearances. That's one view that you'll hear. But at the moment, this is a, a, a subject which is a challenge for the new theory, the out-of-Africa paradigm, because we haven't got much time to generate all these different appearances of people today. That's a fascinating question. Um, have we got, let's go for, for one more. Go for it, and then we'll close. Thank you. If God uh, truly made Adam and Eve from scratch as the two perfect humans, um, did they have an appendix and other surplus organs on the body that we have? And why are we still adapting then from that point? Um, Thank you. Okay. Um, this is a question that I've been asked many times, and there is a view 
coming behind this very good question, which is to do with parts of the body that are a result of our evolutionary past. Let me give you a true-to-life example. I don't know when you first discovered how painful it is when you sit on your coccyx, which is the bone at the very base of your spine. As a child, I remember falling down on my coccyx bone and screaming with pain, and my mum very lovingly told me it's because I used to have a tail. And it's one of those moments when, now maybe you've been brought up in an evangelical, Bible-believing, traditional household, and that sounds weird. In the rest of Europe, that is a totally normal thing for people to be told. It's because we used to be monkeys. And so that's what my mum explained to me, that there are certain vestigial organs, like the appendix, that we don't need anymore. Now, junk DNA was another example. When New Day began in 2004, the biggest objection to the old earth creationist view that humans were the special creation of God was junk DNA. A bit like the appendix, a bit like the coccyx bone, bits of your body that have been left behind, they're still knocking around from our evolutionary past. We now have discovered functionality for the appendix and for all this so-called junk DNA. We found all sorts of fascinating things that it can do. And I would not be surprised if we continue to find function for all kinds of other organs and uh, things that today might seem, well, why have we got that? What, what, what's the point of this? What's the point of that? And we constantly, define, we constantly find that some of these organs actually do have functionality. I'll answer a question that I've already been asked just by a young man here. He was asking, how can I learn at school about biology without it damaging my faith? First of all, I really identify with the question. Of course, it is a challenge to be hearing something from a teacher who you respect and who otherwise you'd have to follow what they say if what they are saying directly contradicts your faith. One of the reasons why I put up those three Christian positions at the start was to help you see that there is a Christian position which doesn't contradict what your biology teacher would teach you at school about human evolution. There is a view, theistic evolution, which would fit very well with everything your biology teacher tells you. If you finish school and apply for university, let's say you go to Southampton University and you study biochemistry. In fact, yesterday I was sitting on a bench next to someone who is studying biochemistry at Southampton University then you would be meeting a Bible-believing Christian, an evangelical Christian, who could come to New Day, who also believes that God used the process of evolution to make people. So, first point, if you're at school, your teacher's telling something which doesn't fit with your faith, don't panic. There are different views on these controversial questions, and it may well be that there is a view that isn't in conflict, either with what you're hearing at home, what you're hearing on Sunday, or with what you're hearing at school. It's true that as we grow and study, we do need to probably come and land at a particular view, a particular understanding. For me, that's something that happened to me in my early 30s. It was when I was in my early 30s that I landed upon the old earth creationist view, 
which I now think is the best understanding of the Bible and also the best understanding of the scientific evidence. It's quite possible that you guys, like me, might change your view as you go through life. I've met people, sometimes who are in church leadership, who've changed their view over a period of maybe 10 years. So I would encourage you, don't panic. The more you study, the more you'll get closer to a position that you'll feel comfortable with in terms of your understanding of the Bible and your understanding of science. Let's continue to use these microphones. Do you want to go for a question over here? Um, my question is similar to one about diversity, but if the world started with, like Adam and Eve, how did we multiply to have like over like several billion people in the world now? And we know that interbreeding within like families can like cause mutations. Like, how did we go from Adam and Eve and their like sons, also, to like loads and loads of people? Well, this is a really important question, and it is mind-boggling to think how fast human population totals have grown very recently. It's important that we understand how few people were living on the planet even in the day of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. This whole business of having 7 billion people on the planet is a very recent phenomenon. For the majority of the existence of humans on the earth, now here I shall just lay my cards on the table. Those of you who are young earth creationists, you're going to disagree with what I'm about to say. I think that anatomically modern humans have been around on our planet for around 100,000 years. That's what I think. I might be wrong. For the vast majority of the time that anatomically modern humans have been on our planet, there have been relatively few of us. It's only very recently that this massive population explosion has taken place. So for large parts, for the majority of the existence of humans on Earth, there's been very little interbreeding. For example, if you were to look at the population of somewhere like Iceland or Greenland or up until recently, I think, Japan you would see very little genetic diversity within that population group because there's been so little interbreeding. Now, from this moment on, it's going to become harder and harder and harder to discover much about the human genome because of the amount of interbreeding, which means that people are going to lose their original genetic identity of where they're from. That means it's going to be harder to find out how long those people have been on the planet because the way you work out how long a people group have been living on the planet is by studying how much diversity there is within the gene pool of that group of people. The less diversity, the shorter the amount of time that people group's been on the planet. This is how we know that humans are a recent phenomenon. This is how we know that humans aren't, in my view, descended from an ancestor that we once shared with the chimpanzee. And you might say, okay, that's very interesting. How would an evolutionist, in fact, just for the sake of the argument, how would an atheist evolutionist explain the recent origin of humanity? They explain it by suggesting that there was a catastrophe, that there was a cataclysmic event with that first original group that there was a mass extinction event, which meant that you had a relatively tiny number of people that survived. And that's why 
all living males are descended from Y chromosomal Adam. All living males are descended from one gene sequence for a man. And it's how come all living females are descended from one gene sequence, mitochondrial Eve. So they suggest that there was a mass extinction event, these two people happened to survive, and that's how come everybody's got that gene signature today. That's quite a complicated answer to a simple question. Yeah, how about you over here? Go for it. All right. Um, in the, the theory of... If, in the theory, we have a common ancestor with animals. If so, why are we the only species that have the, the ability to speak unlike them? Oh, well, this is a really good question because it's so current. This is a question about the origin of speech. If you enter the macroevolutionary paradigm, if you enter the world of where you need to explain everything purely by naturalistic processes, some things are easier to explain than others. The hardest things to explain are the origin of human consciousness and the origin of human speech. It's very difficult to explain those two things. I mean, there are other challenges. The origin of sex. How did... Well, you've got a single-celled organism that's reproducing, reproducing, reproducing. How did you get male and female? That's another challenge. At the moment, if somebody were to put me in a debate and I had to try and persuade people that there has been an intelligent designer at work in the universe, one of the points I'd make is I'd argue from the origin of speech. So at the moment, there is no, in my opinion, plausible naturalistic explanation for the origin of speech and the origin of language. I think, at the moment, it's evidence of a designer. How about over here? What's the next question? Uh, do you believe that in the future, another scientific theory for how life was created will surface? And if, you, and if so, do you think it could discredit God? Is your question about the origin of life itself? A, a scientific sort of uh, explanation, so a rival to the theory of evolution. Okay, if your question is about the origin of organic life, it would never be a rival to evolution because evolution is only dealing with the question of how, once you've got life, that developed into the complexity of life that we have today. But if your question is... Could it be in the future that there's another theory for the origin of life itself that comes along? Absolutely, I would expect there to be lots of new suggestions. So let me give an example of one in my lifetime. In my lifetime, one of the biggest new ideas was called directed panspermia. This is the idea where you discover that life on Earth is extremely unlikely, that we don't have a way of understanding or explaining how organic life got started on our planet. So what you do is you say, okay, life must have been transported here by prehistoric spaceship. Now, this isn't a joke. This is the view put forward by Sir Francis Crick, the man who discovered with James Watson in 1953 the structure of the double helix in DNA he said in his book Life Itself in 1981 that the reason there's life on Earth is because there was a spaceship that sent life, an unmanned spaceship that sent life from a distant galaxy 
life evolved somewhere else in the universe and came here by spaceship. So Crick doesn't solve the problem. He just moves the problem somewhere else in the universe. He says, yeah, life couldn't have come about by chance on Earth. We know that because we have no prebiotic soup, because we haven't got the right reducing atmosphere. The four reasons that I put on the screen in the talk. But we know life does exist on Earth, therefore it must have come about by being transferred from another planet. Now, in my opinion, that doesn't solve the problem. So I think we'll have lots of new theories in, the next, in your lifetime for the origin of life. If you were to ask them to predict what will happen, I think they'll all fail. At the moment, there is no credible rival explanation for how life got going on Earth. There'll be an idea that comes up, has about five to ten years of being popular, then gets discredited. Another alternative comes up, five to ten years of being popular, gets discredited. That's what's happened over the last 50 years. I think that's what will continue to happen because I think there will be no naturalistic explanation for how you got life out of non-life on our planet. That's my prediction, rightly or wrongly. Yes, how about you, over here? You said you believed in macroevolution growing up. Um, what changed your mind? What changed my mind? Why did I stop believing in macroevolution? Um, that's a really good question. It's actually a very simple answer. Up until a certain age, I had absolutely no reason to question what I was being taught. It had never occurred to me to question what Mr. Springthorpe was telling me in biology. Um, one of the reasons I started to question it is because I married a marine biologist, somebody who knew much more about biology than I did, and she was teaching biology at secondary school level and had a biology degree, and I just became interested in the subject. Um, I studied history at university, and I always thought it would be too complicated to even understand biology because I found it hard to understand. But when I got into it, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I reached a point in my life where I decided that the most interesting question of all is, how come we're here? I even reached a point in my life where I was surprised that people didn't talk about this all the time. Why aren't we always talking about how come we're here? <laughs> so when I did begin to question it, I just assumed that there was a fossil record that illustrated Darwin's theory. I just assumed that this theory of slight successive modifications, huge progress made by tiny incremental stages, I assumed that we had the fossils to show that. When I discovered that we didn't have the fossils, that was the first point where I thought, hang on a minute, and then I started to ask some more questions. So I assumed that, that evolution also addressed how life started on Earth, and I discovered that it didn't address that question, and so gradually my inherited belief in macroevolution broke down bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. However, it could be that in the rest of my life I discover overwhelming evidence for macroevolution and I change my mind. But at the moment, that hasn't happened, even though lots of people have tried to show me evidence to persuade me that macroevolution has happened. I haven't so far found it persuasive. That's, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. Yeah, how about over here on my left? So you um, talked earlier slightly about advancing evolution, but in terms of um, like embryo changing and alteration of genes, how far do you feel that that 
um, is changing humans as a as a whole um, if you're just changing a characteristic of someone which is possible but is illegal at the moment how do you think God would feel about humans changing our characteristics oh, well that's a really good question um, I would take a very conservative view I would be one of those Christians who would be extremely concerned about us playing God and seeking to alter um, genetically modify a human embryo so for example Within the last few months, there's been a new story. Could you have a test tube baby that contains three people's uh, genetic content rather than just two? And conservative people like me are horrified by the thought of somebody having three parents. So yes, I take a very traditional view and I would be reluctant to do that kind of experimentation. Yes, over here to my right. Yeah, um, when uh, Jesus comes back for his church and uh, we're raptured uh, and everybody's worshipping the Antichrist, <laughs> um, do you think evolution would disappear because there'd be no room for it? Do I think that the belief in evolution will disappear? That people will stop believing in it at that point? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, again, Full marks, I've never been asked that question before. That's happened twice this morning. I've no idea. There are people on this campsite who believe passionately in theistic evolution, and I respect them very much. Would they change their minds at that moment? I don't know that they would. Well, maybe they would. If the question is, what about all the people who believe... God doesn't exist because evolution explains everything. At that point, presumably some of them might well realize, oh no, I've been wrong. Because at that point, presumably it will be obvious that Jesus is Lord. But according to the Bible, there will still be people at that point who resist the divinity of Christ. A bit like when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in John's Gospel... And the next verse says that the Pharisees decided to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Whereas you and I would think, oh my goodness, that bloke just came back from the dead. Jesus must be the son of God. Let's worship him. Actually, they decide, no, no, we don't like this at all. Let's get him killed. So uh, I imagine you'll get both responses. Yeah, how about over here? Go for it. Um, so the way, regardless of sort of how it started, because I don't think we'll have a good answer for that. I think you're right. Um, the way life is maintained a lot on this earth is the way that water is structured um, and the way hydrogen bonds work and all that. That Water does exist in liquid form on other planets and the fact yes. that it, you know, that is one of the integral parts of life, is it possible, do you personally think that it's possible that life exists outside this planet and then how do you think that would interact with God's plan and God's universe? Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that you've asked this because if you were to say to me, Adrian, what are you worried about? Like, in your Christian worldview, have there ever been times that you've been worried that something will come up that will throw or undermine your Christian faith? I would say about 10 or 15 years ago, on this question, this young man's asking, I thought, yeah, it, when you l listen to the BBC News, the impression you get is that it's only really a matter of time until we do discover life on other planets. And about 10 or 15 years ago, I thought, oh gosh, that would really undermine the uniqueness of life on Earth. 
Two things have happened to me in the last 10 or 15 years in this question. On the one hand, the number of planets that we've discovered has been skyrocketing. Even in the last two years, we've discovered vastly more planets than we did in the previous many years. So we're discovering more and more and more planets all the time. But what you won't hear on the BBC News is that at the same time, the number of requirements for the existence of life is also skyrocketing. Rather than life being just add water, you know there are some packets you can buy in the supermarket, you look at the instructions on the back, and it literally says, open the packet, just add water. And to be honest, when you listen to the BBC News, that's the impression you get. All we need to do is find a planet with water, and life is inevitable. Actually, in the real scientific community, there's all sorts of other requirements. So, for example, I can remember a time 10, 15 years ago when people were arguing for silicon-based life. So we know that carbon-based life is you and me. We're carbon. Silicon-based life was an alternative scenario. Now, that's since been knocked down. So the number of requirements for life is skyrocketing all the time. To answer your question directly, if we discovered life on other planets, would it throw my faith, which wasn't exactly what you're asking, but, but, but the question was around that subject, I personally think that we will discover evidence of life on Mars. <laughs> and let me explain why. I think that evidence of life has traveled from Earth, maybe as far as Mars, certainly to the moon. And I think that that isn't evidence that life has evolved independently on Mars. I think it's just evidence that there's a lot of stuff that over a huge period of time has got transferred across from our planet. Um, I don't think that we will discover that there are life-permitting planets elsewhere in our universe, but I can't rule it out. Um, there is one... That, that this, this next bit you might think is a bit freaky. There's one verse in John's Gospel where Jesus, some people call it the UFO verse, Jesus talks about, I have other people and not of this pasture, I must go and speak to them also. Maybe some people think Jesus is referring to other life somewhere else in the universe, he's going to go and visit there as well. I can't rule that out. Hey, for all I know, God has created life elsewhere in the universe, but did not think that we needed to know that on earth and therefore hasn't made it obvious in the Bible. If God has created life elsewhere, I suppose that wouldn't affect me one way or the other. I would just think, oh, but it would be clearly something that God didn't feel was important enough to tell us in the Bible, apart from one enigmatic phrase in John's Gospel, which could well mean something else. Go for it. Good question. Go for it. Um, do you think that creationism should be taught uh, in science lessons at school alongside evolution, the evolution theory instead of just in religious studies lessons? Well, this is a very good question. Of course, hugely controversial in America. Uh, in America, about 10 to 15 years ago, there was quite a big move to what was called teach the controversy. So in other words, if you're teaching biology 
in a school in America. Remember, in America, they have the separation of church and state. This is really important. If you go to a Church of England secondary school, you don't have the same problems that you do teaching in a country where they have a legal separation of church and state, like they do in America. So in the States, when the intelligent design movement was really taking off between about 2000 and 2004, you were having Christian teachers in secondary school who were saying, look, this is what the textbook says, but just so that you know, there's also a book in the library down the hallway which takes a different view, and here's the controversy. On the one hand, atheist evolutionists say this. On the other hand, here's some evidence for intelligent design. Now, personally, I would have no problem in young people being taught the controversy, taught the fact that there are different views, that in the world today, there are literally millions of Muslims and millions of Christians who believe that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God. I would have no problem in them being told that there is, in my opinion, evidence for intelligent design. And I would look at the structure of the cell. I'd look at all the stuff in Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in the Cell. I might even show them that video that we saw earlier about the Cambrian fossil explosion. In my opinion, there is evidence for intelligent design, whereby intelligent design is the best explanation of the phenomenon. So I wouldn't have a problem with that. Would I die on that hill? Is it so important to me that in a biology lesson, people hear about intelligent design, that I want to make that the hill I die on? No. And I can live with it being something that's in RE. If somebody's saying intelligent design isn't science, I'd say, okay, I disagree, but I'm not going to die on that hill. It's not the most important thing in the world to me. Guys, why don't we call it a day there? I'm going to walk out of that way. We need to close the tent now. Thank you for your attention. It's been great being with you. See you next time. God bless.